Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Good evening. What a pleasure it is to have you here this evening for which I would consider a very, very, very significant and important topic. I trust that the Lord will uh, certainly be gracious and certainly help me to, and I try to boil this, uh, this topic down as a uh, pastor had indicated that I had provided this at a symposium a number of years ago. And uh, even with that, I had to tailor it down. It was an entire day symposium. And it covers really uh, a number of years of, of work as I was planning on and having that, uh, and I still have it in my drawer, for my dissertation with this particular topic. So it has a, covers a, a quite a large area of study and reading and preparation. You can take your Bible, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We will ultimately go there. And as you're turning, allow me to open up our time with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I'm thankful, dear Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross to reconcile our brokenness and our sinfulness before you. And that we have a restored fellowship. We are reconciled with you. There was that division that exists because of sin. There's also a division because of sin between people, one another. I pray, Lord, as your people, that we would truly be as you expect us to be, reconciled in love with one another and understanding one another for your glory and honor, for the advancement of the gospel for the testimony of Jesus Christ before the lost world in which we live. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I uh, listen in on a number of occasions to Brookings uh, Institute. Brookings is a uh, kind of a think tank, an American think tank. They cover a number of topics, usually uh, politically oriented, uh, education, economics. And obviously there's always times when there is a, a topic in regards to, to race. And so I listen in, and when they, they send out to me the, the next topic that I'm usually interested in, they'll indicate uh, whether or not um, I would like to provide some questions to the, to the speaker. And of course, I've provided questions many a time, and I've never really answered, maybe answered one of my questions, but one that I always give to them when it comes to the matter of race. And it's right there, really, I wrote it in your bulletin. Let's suppose right now, and this is what I would ask him. Let's suppose right now, nothing changes beyond where we are today, relationally, functionally, positionally, all that there is in our society. And it never changes beyond this point. Describe for me, define for me how I should live. They never answer that question. I ask that question usually every time. But they never ask that question because they don't want that question to be answered or be to answer because the assumption would be that there's no advancement, there's no attempt to try to make change, to affect change in our society. But I even tell our, as I have an opportunity to talk with, with people, I often ask that question, suppose it doesn't change. What are you going to do? 
Are you going to continue to live in, in hatred and stew and frustration and, and failure? Because nothing has changed. Now, I, in this case, in one part, and I need to watch my time, because I really boil this down, I already feel I've got more than I really need to be saying, is that, in part, I'm not certain I'm qualified totally to, to, to cover the topic. Why? In part, because the guy that really knows a whole lot about, and the whole feeling about this whole topic is dead. He's dead. In 1979 is when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Is one of my first decisions that I had to make is what I'm going to, how am I going to allow racial issues to affect me? And I said then, I am crucified with Christ. And so therefore, the life that I now live, as you see on that tombstone, is how I live. So therefore, the issues of race really, and I'm not going to say it, there aren't times that, that there are things that are said and done that doesn't have an impact. I'm not going to take, say that there are some times when that guy in that tomb wants to say, let me out, let me out, raise me up. But I won't let him out. I'm not going to allow him to rise again. And so as we deal with this topic, and as we would turn to Ephesians, we need to at least appreciate something in regards to the questions about the given. Because in this church, there are more than likely Jews and Gentiles in this church. There's nothing about this book that gives us any, indi excuse me, any indication that there is a racial tension taking place in this church. As a matter of fact, in Paul's opening set of words in chapter 1, he will indicate, and by the way, I think in only two other occasions, Colossae and maybe one other book, does he say something along these lines. He says in verse number 15 of chapter 1, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your, what, love for all the saints... There is a corporate identity connection and relationship to all of the saints. It doesn't say that to Corinthians. It certainly doesn't say that to the Romans. But he does say it in Colossians, and he says in one other, I think one other place, in terms of this unified sense that here is a church that had a genuine love for one another, for all of the saints. So there's really a couple of reasons for us to appreciate to try to study and understand this whole topic of race or racial tension, as God would have it. One is that there, even though there's no evidence of a racial tension in the church, God wants to deal with the topic for the church. He really wants them to understand life before plus what life that is now in light of Jesus Christ. So there is to be a perspective, and one of the points is having an understanding, an assessment of history, my, what we would call my oral tradition. We have an oral tradition, the people of color. The second would be is that to, uh, even though there is no racial problem in the church, is to understand that outside of the church, there are Jews and Gentiles where there are probably is tension that's out there. And if some get saved, some of that without a proper understanding, without a proper uh, appreciation for what Christ has done and what we are in Christ, that comes into the church. 
Those views come into the church. Or what's taking place on the outside has an influence on the church, just like it's probably happening today in our society. Our review of what's taking place in regards to race relationships or regards to what I would call otherness, it has an impact in light of what media demonstrates, all the complaints and things that are taking place on the left side of our, of our society. That influences us. And so I say the second reason that is extremely vital for us is that that kind of, of, of negative influence can bear upon the church. So therefore, we need to have some basic appreciation of what's taking place. We live in reality, what I would call a racialized society. Almost everything is about race. Now, I have well over 10 to characteristics of a racialized society. But there are basically six, and again, I can't elaborate perhaps on them, on them all, but residence and geographical separation that, that has existed from 1870, uh, we have probably 1896, which would be Jim Crow laws being uh, approved and by the Supreme Court that allow for segregation. Segregation legally in the South, but also the redlining of society in the North. Ethnic church distinctions, we have those. Chinese church, Korean church, Spanish church, black church. I went to, and I was a pastor in Minnesota. I went by the, Korean, oh, by the Korean Baptist church. And I said, I see you got it up here, Korean Baptist church. What does that mean? Does that mean Koreans are here? Or does that mean only Koreans can be here? What does that mean? I challenged him with, with that concept. Why do you call it a Korean Baptist church? I can appreciate Baptist, theological. I want to know the theology of a church when I hear its name. But I don't know if there should be an adjective connected to the church of Jesus Christ, the church that Jesus built. Definitions in terms of personal, how we identify ourselves. Our intimate relationships are usually racially distinctive. We're highly politically biased. One of the reasons why, and perhaps I'll bring it out, but I guess I can bring it out here to get the, the time. Why are, why are 95% African-Americans, when I use the term, those of African descent, I don't like using African-Americans, of African descent are Democrats. It goes back to 19, around 1962, 1963, maybe a little before then, during the time of segregation and time with, of Martin Luther King. When they were doing the, the, uh, the demonstrations and the things that were taking place, it was brutal. If you've ever seen any of the, uh, any of the photographs of, of the German shepherds being attacked on, the, on those that are demonstrating, and the water being pelt, and the policemen using billicula, it was, it was terrible. And what basically had happened is that there was a, a, a request sent up to actually two, two individuals. One was Nick, Richard Nixon. He was running for president. The other one was John F. Kennedy. And they asked both of them, we need help down here. Would you send someone down here to kind of at least get this thing neutralized? Well, Nixon, can't, uh, uh, Nixon said, well, look, once I'm voted president, because my advisor says, don't get involved in this thing. Don't get involved in this. Wait until you're president. John F. Kennedy sent his brother down there to stop some of that. 
And because during this period of time, everything had to be unified in order for it to work, those of African descent became Democrats. And they've been Democrats ever since because of that one appeal that took place around 1962-63. Their more view is towards a central government as opposed to a state government because the states were always, certainly the southern states, opposed to those of African descent. And of course we've got a, <clears throat> a national system that, that everything is classified and we just use race as a classification. If we take our passage this, this evening for a moment, if we could, and to kind of appreciate what Paul does here, and assessing what I would consider to be similarities with anything that comes with a racial or an ethnic divide, I find it here in this passage that we can identify with. So Paul actually wants the Ephesian Gentiles as well as, the, well as the Jews to remember. He said that in verse number 11. Look, I want you to remember. I want you to remember, reflect back of how it was. And so in verse number 1 and 2, we find that there is a cultural difference. He said, uh, he said and you, and I'll forget the italics. The, in, in the translators, the editors put the italics. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who, who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's you, Gentiles. Don't you remember that? That was you. Now among whom also we, and I take the we, Paul is now reflecting and talking about the we as Jews, us as Jews, collectively. Not just saying, well, this is what those guys were like. No, this was us, because Paul in other places says he, he, he served it with a clear conscience, and he was zealous about his faith. But in this particular point, he let it be known in a corporate and a systemic way, this is what we were like. This is what we were like, and we weren't any different. Yeah, the basis for which our life was grounded was true. Yours was not, but we didn't live any different. We still function according to the desires of the flesh, according to the, the fulfillment of those desires, and are the way of our thinking, of the mind, how I think, how I perceive people. Perception is one of the biggest problems, I believe, that, that, that has caused uh, the whole problem uh, with, with race. And so we find cultural differences. We find in verse number, like verse number 11, therefore remember, I want you to think about it. This is what they recall, that you once Gentiles in the flesh. And I'm taking that as a, as a, um, a denigrating word. We won't go through all the possible arguments for that. But there's denigrating words here. Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcised by the circumcision that was made in hands. So the other area is the use of degrading language to undermine people. And that words are powerful. They psychologically they can be stigmatized. 
Words have ways of producing wrong beliefs. Blacks were considered to be ignorant, dumb, unqualified to be a part of the citizens of the United States of America. And so therefore we were called all different types of names. Negra, colored, boy. And consequently the effect of when you think about the effects of the naming it demonstrates authority over the person. I am telling you what you are. That's one of the reasons today, and it goes back to the 60s. 60s was a radical change in our thinking. Yes, way prior to that, we tried to do what we could to be equal. You could go, and I always used to tell people, if you really want to understand a little bit more about people, go, go into the to the cosmetic store and look at, go to the ethnic section. You can find two particular significant products there. One, you're gonna find bleaching cream, and two, you're gonna find hair straightening. All of that is prior to the 60s. Why? The effort to be like you. Until the 60s, and in the 60s there was this change. And with the change, the, 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 the spirit of those that were leading would try to try to say, say it louder, I'm black and I'm proud. Say it louder, I'm black and I'm proud. And there goes the afro. And there goes the changing of the name from being called black, negro, colored, boy, negra, to Afro-American, to African-American. We named ourselves. It is our name. It is our name. And I don't use it, but it is our name. Perception of the of Jewish privilege in verse number 12, that at one time you were without Christ being aliens. That We heard this this morning. You're outside. From the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. And that's true of that time. It certainly was true. But what ultimately happens is that in the thinking of the Jews of that era, you would put two things together that would give them the thought of privilege would be descendants of Abraham and circumcision that interlocked in the sense of privilege. And so privilege becomes another, another issue that uh, obviously can play in the, the sense of, of racial tension, racial uh, uh, differences that, that basically exist. And of course there was the, ex which not only that exclusivism, uh, the perception of privilege, but also exclusion from the mainstream of, of society. And with the mainstream of society, obviously, there was a real big disadvantage for us not being able to be in the mainstream uh, of society. Prior to that, and again, I go to watch my time, is that prior to six, which would be my ear, my great-grandmother, born in 1865, we know we're born on a, on a, on a, uh, on a plantation. 
my great-grandmother. I know my other great-grandmother. I don't know that great-grandmother on my mother's side, but I know she's 1865. That means her mother was a slave. She was born uh, just after Civil War, 1864. And so sliding on, it's 100-something, 59-something-odd years. It might sound like a long time ago, but then you go to my mother, 1920. She passed in 2014. I'm in the Civil Rights era in 1960, so here I am right here. Now I'm telling you about these things because I, I went through the segregation era. I went through the radical era. This, <clears throat> I went through that. I participated in that. That guy in 45 to 95, that 79 that's in that grave, that's that guy. That's him. And then obviously there is the barrier he spoke of, the great wall, the middle wall of separation as perhaps being the, uh, the, the, the law, which obviously the, uh, the Lord broke that law and in His design wanted to create one new man out of two. One new man out of two. When we want to look at that formation of that div divide, if I might, in terms of the four stages, and I've already talked to some degree of this within some of the stages, so I'm not going to kind of dwell too deeply and too long into those stages. Actually, there are more. My study that I have, which is a far more lengthy study, but I just boil these down for our study in the basically four areas, which would be, I would consider, our oral tradition. Our oral tradition would really begin uh, with uh, colonial slavery all the way to the... Uh, the civil rights era that we say we got to we have a oral tradition so those first three areas is our oral tradition that we are here because of slavery and uh, we are in part what we are because of segregation and things have just shifted in part because of civil rights in order to break out of that and obviously some of the kinds of things that are taking place today that uh, are somewhat sad in, in some respect. But in each one of those eras, it would be very, very important to appreciate at least what I would consider at least four areas. And I don't have that chart, and I can't spell, I can't speak to these, these particular areas because they each contributed to perception as well as what I've considered the failure of the church. And we have an opportunity, and I don't know what God's opportunity is going to provide for us in this era. But I would pray that we would not make the mistake that the forefathers made. I think there are three watersheds that occurred over this particular era. That the church either participated implicitly or they actually acted against. And um, I would hate if God gives us another opportunity to make a profound impact. Because in our society, with all the race problems, how many of the of officials and those that are really seriously thinking about race comes to the church? Absolutely none. Nobody comes here. So those are the three areas. So each one would be, what were the civil rights rule? What were the Supreme Court rulings? Because there was always a ruling in each one of those eras that had an impact on race. The second one, what was the social vision for the nation? Thirdly, how did the church accept that or did not accept? And what was the Christian theology during that period of time? In other words, the overarching theology. It doesn't mean that every church held this particular theology. 
So in slavery period of time, and if we would look at George Whitfield, he said, Here, here's a, it's the sovereignty of God, it's providence and predestination. The reason why Africans are enslaved, it is because that is what God has ordained. So Whitfield says what is important for the church will do is for us to evangelize the colored people. The vision of the, the nation the expectation for the nation was for a great and supreme nation advancing morally, economically, industrially, and intellectually. Quote, the black slaves are inferior, their property. Should blacks be allowed integration into society and with the prospects of intermarriage, this would threaten the white man's way of life and become a detrimental for a Christian America. Watershed number one was to promote and support the inferior view of those who are of color. Segregation, 1876 to maybe 16, uh, 1960. Following the Civil War, many Americans believe it's done. The end of slavery, automatically given freedom and all rights and all privileges enjoyed by white citizens. Wrong. Wrong. In the South, the free slaves could only work as field hands and house servants. This limited the kinds of jobs and professions black Americans could hold within a growing nation. But the North wasn't any better. There are four basic professional jobs during my time as a kid that I know that those of African consent could have. Doctors, lawyers, dentists, teachers. How could they have those jobs? Because they are serving the black community. They're not crossing over. Professions that went into the, into the uh, corporate ranks were not really allowed. And so when I wanted to be an engineer in 1960, 62, and when my counselor, and I went to a school that was predominantly white, there was only less than 100 out of 3,000 that were of African descent, my counsel from here is that you should not consider that profession. It was so bad, it was so adamant about that, they called my parents. They called my parents, they said, you've got to convince your son not to try to pursue that profession. My mother turned and said, let him try. Let him try. And of course, I really didn't try to get any help. And I can remember the only real jobs that we could really get at that particular time was jobs maybe work, working as orderly or working in a hospital. And I said, I'm not going to take one of those jobs. I'm not going to be an orderly. Not, even though an orderly is, a, is an honest profession, I wasn't going to be one. That's what all the black people could do. That's the only job we could do. So I went off National Cash Register, and I went up there, and I remember going upstairs, and, and man, there had to be 50 guys on the draft board, all white shirts and tied. And while I walked in, everybody turned around like this. The guy supervisor came out and said, what do you want? Well, I'm looking here to apply for a job. Oh, you did? And I got my, I got my, my, my transcript with me, 3.6. Look at my grades in math. I said, okay, fill out the application. Ah, oh, man. I didn't get a job. And I did it on several professional levels. General Electric, Ford, 
number of places that I went. I never got hired. So I said, let me ratchet down a little bit. Let me go ahead and get a, 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 a job on an assembly line. Couldn't get one of those. So I one morning I got up and I said, oh boy, there's a job that I know I can get. I'm going to get there early. I stood out there in the cold for over an hour and a half to get a job to be a stock guy, stock boy. And I, and I was first because I got there at 8, 7.30 or 8 o'clock. It didn't open until 9. And I stood out there in the cold for an hour and a half. I was telling my mom, I got this job. First in line, first interview, never call. It broke me. It broke me. I've only been broken a couple times. That one broke me. Where did I go? Went to the hospital. Got a job in the hospital. Segregation issues. We moved to, South, we moved to, uh, um, to civil rights. And obviously, there, I've already mentioned the fact that the big changes that were taking place the rising up and the changing is no more. Say it louder, I'm black and I'm proud. The basic spirit of the time was say, I don't want anybody to give me anything. Open up the door, I'll get it myself. That was a theme. That was our theme. I don't want to be given anything. Now the theme today seems like it's changed. Open up the door, bring it to me, set it before me, dress it all up, give it all to me. As I listen to those on the Brookings Institute. But one significant thing, which is a major, major watershed, and of course, obviously, with segregation, we could not go to, to the colleges, Bible colleges. The guys that I knew that became pastors that wanted to be educated, there's only really one school, and the group of pa pastors that I came to know, to learn, and be around was Moody. Moody was the only school that would allow blacks to go to school. Moody. The Moody wasn't a bad school. But I often wondered if in our fundamental schools if they've allowed Martin Luther King in. I would wonder if they're in Greenville, Jesse Jackson grew up in Greenville, if they went down into his neighborhood and led him to, to Christ. Fundamentalism was well on its way. And I consider fundamentalism having these five characteristics. One, it's a movement. A direction to the path of, of a conservative biblical position. It's a movement. It's a theology. Biblical the orthodoxy of the Christian faith without which you cannot be called a Christian. An identity, militant, contending for the faith. A stance, separation from heresy and compromise but also consisting of prominent men with powerful voices that everybody told their line. As I saw as a young believer, I was very naive as a young believer in 1978. I thought the world could be solved through our faith, but I began to learn very quickly, not yet. There were several black fundamentalists. I know of three of them, and I sat, and one was very much a, a mentor to me. Richard Maddox was his name. They had broken away from the traditional liberal black church, and they wanted to be fundamentalists. They were fundamentalists. And they wanted to start schools, but they were also very, very much isolated. And they wanted to be a part of a group that they knew. 
they knew of the GRBC, General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Robert T. Ketchum is an anathema amongst the, at least their past in terms of that relation. They came to them and asked for two things. Can we have fellowship with you? And can you support us to start schools? They met in New Jersey. They met in Chicago. And they may have met in one other location. And here, as, as, as Maddox would describe to me what took place in those meetings were unbelievable. As this man basically dominated the conversation and all the things that were taking place in, that meet, in those meetings. They came back later and they said this. Fellowship, no. Money, maybe. These guys were broken. They were broken. They started a group called FBFA, Fundamental Baptist Fellowship Association. They've slightly changed their name. I have been able to introduce that group to Fourth Baptist Church, and they are building some relationship. But they've asked me to try to write a history of the FBFA. I just have not had the time or the mind or the whatever to do it. But those guys were broken. They were broken. How could believers deny them? They said, we're fundamentalists. We want fellowship and just some support. And then, of course, we've got our modern ear that's taking place today, and obviously the things that are going on and uh, the social justice era. But just on a Malona standpoint, as I look and observe, I'm just wondering if tables just have not basically just turned. From the first time in which a slave was brought to this country all the way up until the now, those of African descent, they have really have been brutalized, they have been set aside, they have been segregated. They've been hung, 4,000 have been hung between 1877 to 1950. Mississippi was considered the Iron Curtain. When I went down to the South, my parents was afraid because of the guy that was in the grave. That guy in the grave was a little bit of a tough guy. And I'm going down to Louisiana, which is the third state, the highest state with the largest number of hangings. If tables haven't really turned, the race card is played and keeps those of European descent in check. Pull the card out with everything. Broke my leg, race card. You did it. The challenge here now really, and I can need a close, you need to get a challenge here. Along the lines of the fact that if there's anything, and those are the three watersheds, I, I, I shared them already. One was the whole, whole question of perception being unchecked by a, the Christian church, whether it's liberal or conservative. Watershed number two, Jim Crow laws was supported. I have an interview, and I didn't share that interview. I got an interview to only three people saying that interview. The interview was Bob Jones Jr., the pastor of the church in Philadelphia who did the interview and myself. I've never shared that interview. I have the interview. 
which supported Jim Crow laws and fundamentalist rejection of fundamentalists of color for fellowship. Three watersheds that if it would have been different, what would it have been? God bringing opportunity. Bringing opportunity. What would have been, what difference could it be the day the church would have been a bright and shiny star? You want to know how to relate? Come to us. So what we really basically need is, <laughs> we need to clean the mess. <laughs> I, I believe what is really essential and very, very important is the whole issue of what I would call deep worldview themes. What do I really, re, what's really down here? See, when we deal with discipleship, really there are three basic levels. It's very hard to get to the depth Really down where the ice, you know, the iceberg has got the tip, and you got all that stuff down below that's really the mass of it. So there's a lot of surface things. In other words, the things that we can see, the sensory stuff, the patterns of behavior, those signs, those rituals, the dress, the talk, the hair. Then there's the explicit piece, which are the beliefs. And usually we see, we can do these two, we see these two things, we, we teach those two things, but what happens implicitly down, down the worldview themes, down there deep in the heart? This is why, in my mind, for me, I'd had, race had to be dealt with in my salvation almost in day one, only because it, it played a big part of my life. And it's buried. I don't know where, but it's buried. That's where it's got to be, that core area down there. And that has to be transformation. And because of that transformation, how do therefore do we clean up? How do you clean up a mess? You look at that, well, you know what? You just start picking up one thing at a time. You know, it, looks, it can look overwhelming, and where we are, it's overwhelming. But it's just one thing at a time. And so I would say, we're going to let the grace of God fulfill His design in the church. He's going to let it, we're going to allow Him to do that with us. We're going to allow Him to do that. Which means, one step at a time, who's responsible? I think when I put on there, who's really responsible? I think every group, every institution God ordained has a place. But we're only going to talk about us. One could be, again, with the family, teaching the next generation. What does it mean to love one another? Jesus Christ says, you know, we, we look at signs and says, you know what, the signs for the day, the supernatural signs for the day are suspended. Or not, they're not operative. But there is one that is. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How will you know that? Because we love one another. And we need to understand what that really is. It isn't just shaking hands, being cordial, being friendly. You think about the atonement and what it took for Christ. I was in our reading, we're, we're at the point where Christ says, you know what, he's telling the disciples, you know what, I'm going to be rejected. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be spat upon. They're going to beat me to a pulp for us. For us, that's love. That's love. 
So they always begin in the home. Every again, in a role, as a role of, of an individual, it's got to be a death to the old self. Which means the uncle's got to say, you know, really what I am. I don't know if anybody's on. I'm, I'm trying to be honest with myself. Let me tell you, I don't, I, don't, I don't like certain things. I don't like certain people. That old guy did. But I don't want the new guy. To, I certainly don't want that new guy. Christ, said, Christ, said, Christ died for that other. He died for otherness. Death to self. Taking on the mind of Christ. And then there may be the role of the church. Check, or what I call check or know the acceptance level for otherness. And the writer of the Hebrews and what he, uh, Ephesians, what Paul was trying to do, one of the things that, that the Jews had was the whole concept of election. He starts off, let it be known that we've been elected in Ephesians. He, he lets that church know that we have been chosen. Election was not only for Abraham and the decision, descendants, it's for those in Christ. But he also indicated that in verse 4, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to him according to uh, his good pleasure, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Acceptance is one of the key pieces when I build off my model for reconciliation. It begins with that concept that Christ and the Father ordain acceptance in the new man. Checking our acceptance level for otherness, regular reminders of our identity in Christ, and expect, I expect, you want to go down this alley? I expect God to bring us opportunities for relational growth and perceptive change. If we want to go down this alley, which is that deep worldview perception and the love of one another. A lot more can be said and done and clarified, and I wish I could have much more time. Time is up. But I'm grateful for our church, our church family, our pastor, our leaders. I really, really am. Praise the Lord for each and every one of you. Let us be change agents first within ourselves and within our church. We aren't going to be able to change the world. That's not our role. Not at a mass level. Only at the individual level. We'll take the love of Christ to those that are dying. Those that are hurting. Those that feel isolated in our world. Christ is our Savior.